Very good. It is a family Sunday today, so the kids get to stay, uh, which means I'll be going a little bit shorter than normal. I'll save the time for the next week. Don't worry. But let's turn in our books to the book, uh, in our Bibles to the book of Philippians. We are in chapter four, so I encourage you to turn there. And we'll be reading verses two uh, through nine. Um, in the book of Philippians. So we are starting to wind down here and as we go through this wonderful book. But if you would turn there with me and listen carefully as this is God's word. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it more than ever. Once again, thank you for giving it to us and for making us your people. Lord, today we come to the wonderful but difficult words of the Apostle Paul. So we pray that we would learn from you today, that we would learn how to be gracious and gentle, how to think well of one another and how to pray. Thank you that today we're learning yet again from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words understand them, believe them, and obey them. And so we pray, speak through Philippians 4 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite Bible stories, and I have a lot of favorite Bible stories, but is the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you remember, Joseph's brothers resent him um, because of the favor that he has with God and with men, and because he's a little bit too vocal about it. Actually, he's a lot too vocal about it. And so their resentment turns into animosity, which turns into vengeance, which turns into betrayal. And they sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph's life becomes a series of hardships and misfortunes. But God keeps uh, intervening in his life and turning misfortune into opportunity. And Joseph himself describes it this way in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So late in the story, when Joseph has uh, risen to a level of uh, wealth and power, uh, he reunites with his brothers and reconciles with them. 
and he forgives them. And he sends his brothers to Canaan to bring their father Jacob back with them to Egypt so that Joseph can be reunited with him. And Joseph has a single request as he sends his brothers on their journey to get their father and bring him back. And we find that in Genesis 45. It says, then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. Joseph knew brothers. That actually could serve as general marching orders for the people of God. Don't quarrel on the way. Between reconciliation and reunion, Joseph reconciling with his brothers and setting up this reunion with his father. But we have reconciliation and reunion too. And he says, between those two things, settle your differences, drop your weapons, choose peace. Now this is essentially the same thing the Apostle Paul says to two women in the church in Philippi. And those women, uh, their names are uh, Euodia and Syntyche. They're two people who forgot that they live between a great reconciliation and a great reunion. And therefore they're told, don't quarrel on the way. Here's what Paul says, beginning at verse two, with the practice of reconciliation. The practice of reconciliation. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Have you ever wished that your name was in the Bible? Well, if you did, you probably wanted your name mentioned like Timothy's name is mentioned. He's the only New Testament believer mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And you'd want your name mentioned in a positive way. You probably wouldn't want your name mentioned the way these two godly women's names are mentioned here in verse two. That is to rebuke you because you're having a conflict with one another. Just think about it. Can you imagine being immortalized for the next 2,000 years in every culture on the planet as being the two ladies in the church that needed uh, to work together, that the whole church needed to work together to see if we can get them to get along. But that's how Euodia and Syntyche are mentioned in this passage. And as you go through it, it does sound a little humorous, but there's nothing humorous about the situation they're going through. There's also nothing unusual about the situation they're going through. This kind of thing happens in churches all over the world. And I've even heard that maybe once every decade, possibly perhaps, it might even happen here at Potomac Hills. Of course, it's easy for us to read because we sort of look at it from a distance. After all, it happened a long time ago, and we don't know anybody named Euodia and Syntyche. But what if I read it this way? I entreat Claire and I entreat Andrea to agree in the Lord. Oh, now you're paying attention. We know those names. 
And if this was a real situation, I'm sure you'd be looking right at Claire, just like you did a few seconds ago. You can't look at Andrea because she's hiding at home watching the live stream. Hi, Andrea. <laughs> of course, you need to know this is not a real situation. Claire and Andrea get along just fine as evidenced by the women's retreat they just pulled off and yes, I got their permission to use their names. And I'm guessing that right now, several of you are thinking, thank you, Jesus, that he didn't use my name. <laughs> but I could have. And most of you think of a, can think of a time when using your names would have been pretty accurate. I mean, let me ask you a rhetorical question. That means don't answer it out loud. How many of you have been involved in a church rift sometime in your life? Maybe here, maybe somewhere else you attended. And maybe the church didn't split, but relationships were damaged. Many of you have been there at one time or another. I imagine most of us have. And let me ask some follow-up questions. How many of those rifts were over doctrinal issues? A few. How many of those issues, uh, rifts were over church program issues? Some. How many of those rifts were over personality conflicts? Most. I'd be a lot more discouraged about the problem of disharmony among believers if I didn't remember that it's been around since the day the church began. These early churches were anything but pockets of perfection. Churches in Corinth and Galatia, Rome and Thessalonica, even a great church like the one here in Philippi has their troubles and their skirmishes. Maybe you've had days like I've had where you've been accused of being too much and not enough in the same day. And those criticisms can be painful because they're largely unanswerable. You don't know how to defend yourself and maintain the spirit of peace. So what do you do? Well, that's what this passage is all about. If you think about it, in Philippians 3, Paul talked about the great reconciliation that's been won for us through Christ's death. Earlier this morning in Sunday school, James taught us from Romans 5, which was also about the great reconciliation that we have with Christ. And uh, Paul tells us in chapter 3, he considers nothing worth knowing or having except the righteousness of God that comes uh, from God and is by faith. It is a great reconciliation between him and Christ. And then he talks at the very end of the chapter about the great reunion that is awaiting us because of Christ's resurrection. And he lives in eager expectation of when Christ returns and transforms us to be like him. And that's gonna be a great reunion. And he sums it all up in verse 1, which we ended with last week. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. How do brothers and sisters stand firm in the Lord? Well, by holding on to that great reconciliation and by looking forward to that great reunion. And with that, he says there needs to be a steadfast refusal to quarrel on the way. Actually, it's, this is not the first time the Apostle Paul used that phrase, stand firm, in his letter to the Philippians. He used it back in chapter 1 
in chapter 1, verse 27. That context, like this context, has to do with unity. And there he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We live our lives between a great reconciliation and a great reunion, but we can't quarrel on the way. Because if we do, the striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is damaged. And what's so helpful about this part of Philippians is Paul gets, goes beyond just admonishing these two. Embedded here in these verses is a manual for conflict resolution. He's actually giving us step-by-step -step instructions for restoring peace in the face of animosity and bitterness. In fact, he mentions peace twice in this passage. He wants the peace of God and the God of peace to rule in this situation, and he tells the Philippians to pursue peace. So we're gonna walk through Paul's instruction. I'm not gonna go through every uh, detail, but sort of big picture uh, for how to restore peace after we've quarreled on the way. It's simple, it's practical, it's doable, it's workable. And Paul sets the conflict between these two women in the context of heaven, the church, and the Lord. So let's start with heaven. Paul has just reminded the church, including Euodia and Syntyche, and yes, you have to practice those names. He has just reminded them, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now at the end of verse three, he reminds everyone that their names are written in the book of life. And what Paul's doing is reorienting them to the reality of the gospel. It's hard to maintain petty grudges in the face of gospel reality. And the reality of the gospel is this. Christ has redeemed you by his blood and written your name in the book of life, not by any merit of your own, but purely out of his grace. While you were his enemy, he died in your place so he can make peace with God for you. And Christ has made you a citizen of his kingdom and is coming to transform your lowly body so it is like his glorious body. Now, what was your issue again? Oh, Yodia didn't give you credit for all you did in Sunday school? Oh, Syntyche gets to sing more often on the worship team than you do. And you think this matters in light of gospel reality. Think about it. You remember the scene when Jesus' disciples were arguing over who's the greatest? And he comes up next to them and he asks what they're talking about. Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. We're good, thanks. Actually, it says Mark 9, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They're ashamed. To be quarreling on the way about who was the greatest in the presence of the greatness of God. It's just embarrassing. If we mastered the art of getting gospel reality into focus, we do a whole lot less quarreling on the way. But it's not just about looking forward to heaven and awaiting Jesus, it's also about the church here and now. 
Paul calls the church, <coughs> excuse me, to help. Because this conflict is not a private matter. It hurts everyone. It hurts the cause of the gospel. Don't be misled. One Christian's animosity against another is never a private matter. It's not just between two people. It hurts us all. And it damages the credibility of the gospel. It's Paul's express wish the church would contend with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So quarreling on the way is a blight on the gospel. And by the way, we see here restoration is the work of the whole body. It's not just the duty of the pastors and the elders to broker peace. Paul calls on all the members of the church. So if you're aware of strife between fellow Christians, he's asking you to do your part to bring peace. But not just unity for the sake of peace and quiet, but for the sake of Christ. And that's the third thing we need to see is this is in the Lord. Paul calls them to agreement, but not just with each other and not just over the issue at hand. Whatever that issue is, Paul calls them to agree with each other in the Lord. And he uses that phrase in the Lord again in verses four and seven. Paul knows that aside from a few issues of moral or doctrinal nature, there are few things that should really divide us. And none of them are bigger than the Christ who unites us. The person and work of Jesus Christ in almost every instance trumps our differences of opinion. You lean left politically and you lean right. You like this style of worship music and you like that style. You wish we'd talk more about this topic and you wish we'd mention it less. And on and on it goes. Well, oh, that's fine and well. We don't all have to be the same. We don't have to agree with each other on all the issues and all the positions. But what is required is that we agree in the Lord. Who he is, what he's done, that none of us would be here except for his mercy. That's the common ground that Paul wants us to have. So Paul sets this conflict in these three contexts. The reality of the gospel in heaven. The life of the church. And the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of which leads us to this practice of reconciliation. But it doesn't stop there because Paul lays out some practical steps to resolve conflict. And here's what I've sort of been implying up to now, but I need to make uh, more explicit. What Paul writes in verses four through seven are not random thoughts unrelated to anything else he said in this letter. We usually treat these verses that way. We cut and paste these verses and make them into a sentimental wall plaque. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We put it on greeting cards and send it to cheer somebody up. That is not how these verses function in this letter. They're Paul's simple and practical counsel on how to help Yodio and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And that takes the practice of right action. practice of right actions. Look here, Paul absolutizes, I don't even know if that's a word, absolutizes uh, these sort of terms of peace. 
Listen to the language he uses, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Always, everyone, anything, everything. That's important. The tendency in conflict is to absolutize the terms of war. You never, you always. And animosity strips us of the capacity to find anything good or noble or admirable in our opponent. So Paul pushes this tendency in the opposite direction. He pushes us towards pursuing and embracing absolute joy, absolute gentleness, absolute trust in God. And I'm just going to focus in on one of these commands because I think it controls the whole passage. And it's the one we usually skip over. The Apostle Paul instructs them and us to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now I admit this one's a bit tricky. It's translated in various ways. So the Christian Standard Bible has let your graciousness be known to everyone. The New Living has let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. The New American Standard has let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And the New International has let your gentleness be evident to all. Now scholars tell us the Greek word for reasonableness, graciousness, gentleness is not an easy word to translate. Sort of means having a gentle forbearance with others. It's kind of getting at the idea. It's the opposite of being contentious and self-seeking. And Paul is telling us that this gracious, gentle spirit with one another and with the watching world should be displayed by believers. We need this gentle spirit when we seek to reconcile with other people. We need a gracious, forbearing spirit. We need a willingness to give up our preferences and show grace to others. This call to graciousness, it's important as we engage the world with biblical truth. I think it's especially important now when we're speaking on the most volatile issues in the culture today, namely marriage and sexuality. Nothing creates criticism and outrage quicker than teaching that there's a historical position on marriage. One man, one woman, united in the covenant of marriage. And as we take our stands on those kinds of issues, we need courage. But that courage has to be blended with graciousness. Now, the operative words in verse 5 are reasonableness, be known, which is one word in Greek, and everyone. All of those are weighty words. Reasonableness is this uh, graciousness, gentleness. It's a literal refusal to act out the anger and retaliation to which you feel you're entitled. The word for be known uh, refers not so much as to your behavior as it does to the perception of your behavior. In other words, the real measure of your gentleness is not that you think you're being gentle. But if the other person sees it and feels it and experiences that gentleness. And the word everyone in the Greek is pos anthropos, all humanity, every living 
breathing person. Essentially, Paul denies us venting rights, except in one instance, with God. And these verses are not a prescription for anxiety in general. There's all different types of anxiety. Most of it's very holistic. There's physical, mental, social, uh, and spiritual causes, and usually you treat it, you have to treat it all those different ways. So if you think yours is physical, don't ignore the spiritual or the mental or the social or any of the other ways. We deal with it, I encourage you to deal with it holistically. But that's not the anxiety he's really talking about in this passage. He's talking about the anxiety uh, caused by conflict. And so his uh, prescription specifically is for that. Anxiety that's caused by this conflict between these two women. Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, whatever it is that you're fighting about. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is telling Yodia and Syntyche, the whole Philippian church, you, me, all of us, to pray. In verse 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And in verse 6, he says, let your requests be made known to God. In essence, what Paul is saying, let God know your problems, let others know your peace. I'll say that again. Let God know your problems, let others know your peace. The first and most basic remedy for anxiety over conflict, over strife, over any relational issues is prayer. Paul says that peace comes only through prayer. He says that to relieve your anxiety in this way, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's essentially don't worry about anything, pray about everything. And it comes to us as a command. D.A. Carson once said, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. I mean, this is basic Christianity. But how are you doing in this discipline of unhurried, unhindered time with God? The reality is, I think this is the hardest thing Paul says in this passage. It is a feat of superhuman endurance not to vent with, not to rant at, not to grumble about another human being when we're in some sort of conflict. I find it nearly impossible, and I'm guessing you do too. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying we can't address problems or we can't address the situation with the other person. He's saying we need to do it in a gentle way, a way of graciousness, a way of reasonableness. And the way you get to that place is to bring the whole thing to God first and keep bringing it until his peace is guarding your heart and mind. But here's the thing. If we vent with God, we can be peaceable with others. If we vent with others, we won't have peace anywhere. All that tends to do is stir us up even more. So may I commend the way of 
prayerfulness. Some of you are locked in seemingly irreconcilable conflicts with others. And part of the reason, certainly not the only reason, but part of the reason is that maybe you're venting too much and praying too little. And it's time to reverse that pattern and see what happens. So that's the main thing Paul wants us to do. Bring our problems to God and bring our peace to others. But he doesn't just prep us for what to do. He also preps us for the practice of right thinking. Look at verses eight and nine. The practice of right thinking. So we have right actions and right thinking. It says there, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So once again, Paul is moving us away from our natural tendency to think poorly of the other person. He's forcing us to go mentally in the other direction. He's exhorting us to positive thinking, but he also is exhorting us to critical thinking. Now, positive thinking, because he wants us to see the good. So this is not a generic, think about things that are true and honorable, just and pure. You're in the middle of a conflict. He wants you to think about that in regards to that conflict and in regards to that person. I mean, there was a day when Yodia and Syntyche had no problem seeing the good in each other. That's how they became friends and servants of the gospel and labored side by side with Paul uh, in the gospel. But whatever came between them has now affected their eyesight and they can't see one good thing in the other. And Paul's asking them to reverse that, to practice seeking virtues, not shortcomings, to practice singing each other's praises, not calling out their vices. We always have to be reminded that we're called to confess our own sins, not one another's. But Paul also invites a certain critical-mindedness. And by that, I mean, he is asking us to be discerning. You can't think about what's true or honorable or lovely or any of the other virtues Paul names unless you're discerning. And if you remember, this is what he prays for the Philippians all the way back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He said, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's saying we need discernment, so Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It takes a renewal of our minds to be able to know what is good and true and right. And Paul tells us to renew our minds according to the word of God, to discern what is best according to the character of God, and to fill our minds with these things with the help of the Spirit of God. And besides being a good thing for us, it helps restore peace in the midst of relational conflict. 
And so then Paul very quickly gives four ways to put into practice what he has now prescribed about right thinking. He says, focus on what you've learned, received, seen, and heard. In this way of life is not just a mental exercise. Right thinking leads to right living. It's lived, it's practiced, it's walked out, not just thought out. You don't just ponder it, you do it. You find someone who lives this way and you walk with them and you imitate them. And he says, first, you imitate the things learned. I think this refers to what Paul has taught them and preached to them when he was in Philippi. The focus is upon the truth that he's expounded, the sound doctrine that they've learned and underscores the importance for every Christian to sit under sound Bible teaching and preaching just as the Philippians had. Second, you imitate the things received. I think this refers to what Paul has written to them, and particularly in this letter. It's the importance of the public reading of scripture in church. Paul intended that the written word of God be read to the people of God in their corporate gatherings. The same can be said for studying its truth. It demonstrates the necessity of receiving the sanctifying truth of scripture. You realize when we read the scripture, before we get to the sermon, and even though much of our prayers are based on sermon, much of our, our uh, scripture, much of our responsive readings are based on scripture, uh, we have a lot of scripture in our service. That's the time when God speaks to us most directly is in the reading of God's word. Think about that next time you go visit another church, whether they read God's word a lot or not. If we don't read it, what we're taking away is the time that God speaks to us most directly. So it's things received, things heard. I think this is referring to, it doesn't specify, but the things they've heard about Paul. They're in Philippi, he's under guard uh, in Rome. Now it includes the reports they've heard about him and, and from those who are with Paul and those who are coming to report on what's going on, especially how his life is going in prison. How's Paul responding to his captivity? How's Paul reacting? to unjust suffering? How is he leaving this matter in the hands of God? Is he responding with grace to those who curse him? Is Paul anxious and worried or is he filled with peace? That news would come to uh, the church in Philippi, it spread like wildfire. And the reports they hear about Paul's imprisonment and how he's living his life are a powerful teaching tool. And finally, you imitate the things seen. Paul says they should practice what they have seen in him. This points to the things that he's modeled in their presence. Here's what they've directly observed in Paul's life. They remember how he walked in faith and how he handled himself and how he acted and reacted. In every situation, there's an aid for them in living a godly life in Christ. And to follow what they had seen in Paul allows them not only to imitate him, but ultimately to imitate Christ. And Paul writes, practice these things. That's another command. It's in the present tense, meaning that it's supposed to be this ongoing pursuit in our life. 
Paul's saying you need to live in a manner consistent with my life and my teaching. He's modeled this message. He's become an example to the Philippians concerning how they should live in the pursuit of reconciliation, in the pursuit of holiness, and in the pursuit of Christ. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's an old term called stay in the traces. That phrase actually comes from colonial times uh, in American history when roads were not paved and they were traveled by horse-drawn wagons. And over time, those wagon wheels would dig deep ruts and those ruts would harden until they were called traces. And a good driver would make sure his wagon wheels were firmly in the traces and then he let the horses pull the wagon to the destination. Now down south, there's a famous parkway called the Natchez Trace. It's a lovely drive from Nashville, Tennessee. It ends in Natchez, Mississippi, the banks of the Mississippi River. And in the old days, people who wanted to go to Texas would start, they'd go to Nashville, and they would follow the trace from Nashville to Natchez. And then they'd get another one, take them to Texas. And in a few places, the old roadbed has been found and preserved with deep trace marks still evident 150, 175, 200 years later. And to travel the road, you simply put your wagon in the traces in Nashville and you just tried to stay in the traces until you got to Natchez, a few hundred miles down the road. I think it's a parable of the spiritual life. Most days, nothing exciting happens. 99% of life is ordinary. You get up, you eat breakfast, you go to work or take care of the kids or both. Come home, eat supper, go to bed, get up the next day and do it all over again. And the day after that. And the day after that. Day in and day out. This is life for most of us. And so in the ordinary spiritual life, what is the will of God for you and me? It's to get up each day and do what you have to do. Cheerfully if you can, grumpy sometimes, but you do it nonetheless. Doing God's will means staying in the traces of life day after day after day. Just do what God has given you to do. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, do it anyway. If you wish you were doing something else, grit your teeth and keep going. God blesses people who do what they have to do each and every day, and who do it even though they'd rather be doing something else. And all of us are tempted to jump the traces from time to time. And I can say after 30 years as a pastor, I can testify that I've never yet met the man or woman who prospered after jumping the traces. You can end up trading one rut for another Plus you have guilt inside and broken hearts all around. If you stay in the traces, you may be bored tomorrow morning, but you won't be embarrassed or ashamed of the choices you made. And Paul here has given us the traces to stay in, the practice of right actions and the practice of right thinking. As we consider these things, we need to remember the hope we have in Christ. He's told us what to do. But in order to do them, in order to stay in the traces, we need to remember Jesus never broke these commands. 
and he solved all these problems and issues. And Christ is the reconciler, the gentle savior. His gift of salvation gives us cause to rejoice. He removes our greatest fear, relieves our deepest anxiety through his victorious death and resurrection. He paid the penalty for those who sinned uh, with their thoughts and he grants them a new mind and turn. And so we're to look to the Savior for our righteousness and to follow him and imitate him in the practice of right actions and in the practice of right thinking. And as you do that, Paul says the God of peace will be with you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We confess our failures to stop quarreling on the way. We think on the wrong things and wonder why things don't get better. We forget how to be gentle and gracious and wonder why people don't want to be with us. We're quick to be anxious about relational conflict, but we're slow to pray for those we're at odds with. We know we should let God know of our problems and let others know our peace, but we get it backwards way too often. So Lord, enable us to demonstrate this discernment by how we pray and by how we think and by how we speak. Grant that we may live like people called to be gracious and gentle, one to another, and continue to work in each of us as we learn how to live lives worthy of the gospel. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through the book of Philippians, draw us ever closer to the one who loves us gently and graciously. Your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.